Hello and welcome to the Sitcom Club interviews, the first of an occasional series of companion shows to the Sitcom Club itself. If this is your first time with us, welcome. I'll tell you a little bit more about the Sitcom Club itself at the end of the podcast. Today I'm in conversation with Geoffrey Holland, who many of you will know from Croft and Petty shows such as Heidi High, You Rang My Lord, I Know Dr. Beeching, as well as sketch shows including Ross Abbott's Madhouse and The Kenny Everett Show. We'll hear about all of those and more. But first, I asked Geoffrey about his forthcoming one-man Edinburgh Festival show, and this is my friend, Mr. Laurel. Well, I've always thought it would be a good idea to tell the story of Stan Laurel, because it is a fascinating tale. You know, people don't know certain things about him. Like, first start, he's the silly little dim one in the act. But in fact, he was the brains behind the whole concept. You know, he wrote most of the material. He directed most of the movies. Other directors got credit, but, uh, you know, they just let Stan do it because they knew he knew what he was doing. And then he went and edited all the finished work and honed it, toned it, put it together. So it all worked out. He did twice the work that Oliver Hardy did and um, got twice the money for it, uh, which was fine with, with Mr. Hardy. He was quite happy to come in and do his job, uh, which he did very well. And then he went off and played golf. And then Stan went back in the studio and did all the extra work. It's been a fascinating tale to tell. I learned all about him through the various biographies that were that have been written over the years. I'm more and more convinced that it was a good idea to do a one-man show to tell the story of his life, and which is what I do. And uh, I met a wonderful writer, Gail Lowe, who uh, wrote it with me and wrote most of the text herself. Of course, she's a very accomplished writer. I co-wrote it with her in as much as I gave her lots of historical facts that she didn't know about, helped her with the research, and um, I put all the comedy in as well. So uh, you've got an hour of an interesting tale. And people say to me afterwards, oh, I didn't know that about him. I had no idea he did all that, and that happened, and this happened. You know, and the women in his life as well, because he was a, a bit of a ladies' man on the quiet. You know, you wouldn't think to look at him, but he was. <laughs> so all that's in there as well, you know. And from where I'm sat, I actually have the Lauren Hardy Hal Roach collection on my shelf. Do you have either a particular film or a particular favourite scene of Lauren Hardy's work? I do have a particular favourite, yes. I've got the, of their feature films. Uh, my favourite is Way Out West, uh, which just seems to have everything in it. It's, it's got everything you could imagine. And then of their short films, I think I've got two favourites. Uh, one is the one which is known by people as the one with the piano which is you know called the music box so that's the one where they try and get this piano up these massive steep steps and also there's one called toad in a hole which is uh, where they buy this beat up little fishing boat and try and do it up and the trouble that they both get into trying to do that which is another favorite of mine this is not the first time that you've portrayed stan laurel because am i right in thinking that the first was when you were in the heidi high musical and yourself and paul shane portrayed laurel and hardy as part of the show that's right we did we portrayed laurel and hardy we sang their wonderful song you know in the blue ridge mountains of virginia the trail of the lonesome pine it was in the heidi high summer show that we did and uh, we just dressed up as them as part of a, a musical a movie sequence of various stars. It went down extremely well because we were both huge fans, you know, of the boys. But yeah, it was a great hit, that wonderful moment to be able to do that. Now, before I ask you a little bit more about Heidi High, I understand that your first association with David Croft was actually in the stage show of Dad's Army. That is correct, yes. I first met Perry and Croft when I went to audition for the Dad's Army stage show which was coming up in 1975 
I went up from Chichester where I was working at the time and I went up and, uh, to London to meet them because it was being staged by Roger Redfarn who was a, an old associate of mine and was a director of the Belgrade Theatre in Coventry where I started my career doing all the, all the character work that you know that I did in rep for about five years and Roger knew that I was potentially very useful to a, a show like Dad's Army and um, got me to come and audition for Perry and Croft and uh, we just sort of hit it off there and then and uh, the rest is history really. I got the job and spent a, a wonderful year working in the company with the Dad's Army uh, company uh, on stage understudying Pike and Walker and then when we toured the show in, in the, the early months of 76 they asked me to take over Private Walker and play Walker so I, <laughs> I did that which was wonderful for me to be you know I was what 29 years old at the time and I was there as a member of Captain Mannering's platoon I couldn't believe it when I was standing on the stage that, that first night as Walker it was fantastic I really enjoyed that that sort of snowballed into me being asked to appear in a couple of episodes of Atel Fop Mom uh, later on and then a, a couple of Are You Being Serves for David as well and then also an episode of the very last series of Dad's Army for television I played a, an army truck driver in one of those and uh, then of course Later on in 1979, when they wrote the pilot script for Heidi High, they wrote Spike with me in mind. So I sort of made my way into the Perry and Croft camp well and truly by then. I understand that Ian Lavender has spoken previously about when he began the role of Pike. Initially, he was going into this group of sort of grizzled old bears, so to speak, all these veteran actors. <laughs> How was that for yourself going into the stage show? And to a further extent, was that ever like an issue in, in Heidi High, working with people like Felix Bonesse or Leslie Dwyer? No, it, well, it wasn't an issue for me, no, because I mean, I knew the show very well. I mean, when Ian was talking about when it sort of started, you know, nobody knew the show and it wasn't established. When I joined the company, Dad's Army was well established and uh, everyone knew each other and uh, they were all charming, absolutely charming, particularly John LeMessurier to me, so it took me under his wing and he looked after me while we were on the road of the tour. But uh, no, they were all wonderful. By then, Arthur Lowe had sort of become Captain Mannering and he kept himself very much to himself, quite a private person. He was a sort of team leader, but uh, most of the other guys were you know, absolutely wonderful. We had a, a, a lovely time. The role of Spike in Heidi High, as I understand it, this is really sort of the persona of Jimmy Perry in the show. That's right. It was based on Jimmy's experiences uh, when he was a drama student. Um, he was studying at RADA, and during the summer breaks, he used to go to Butlins and wear a red coat. His bill matter was because everyone used to have bill matter in those days. It was laugh and be merry with jolly Jim Perry, you know, the old Jim. He was full of beans, and he was a great red coat, and he, he learned the business there. And of course, David Croft worked at the holiday camps too, um, producing plays when they used to put plays on in the theatres there. So they both had experience of all that. In fact, they wrote about things they knew about way back. You know, you can take it back to Dad's Army. Jimmy Perry was actually Private Pike. He was the 15-year-old who joined the home guard before he was old enough to be called up. And uh, again, he ran the concert party in the jungle for It Ain't Half a Month. So they wrote about stuff they knew. And that was Jimmy's particular role. It was the young entertainer in the holiday camp based on the part that Spike was based on, yeah. And is that something that, as an actor, is this something that you're conscious of throughout your performances? You know, you, you know that not only is this a character that's been written, but also this is actually somebody's real-life experience that you're portraying. Is that going through your mind when you're then rehearsing? Not really. I mean, to be honest, no, because I mean, they wrote Spike within the context of all the stuff. You know, all those silly costumes that I had to wear I mean, for the show, 
It, they were amazing, but there was no way anybody like Spike could have actually made all that stuff. You know, where was he going to get his material from? Where was he going to store it all? You know, these incredible elaborate costumes that took really skilled people to put them together. But uh, no, I think the opening was basically Jimmy's idea, you know, that it's based on his experience as a struggling young entertainer. And that's what Spike was really, struggling to be funny, you know, without the hope in hell of being of ever achieving anything. Because he, the way Spike was written for me was that he had all the enthusiasm in the world. World, which of course was Jimmy. Jimmy's you know, full of beans and all, had all that going for him. But as far as Spike was concerned, there was absolutely no talent there whatsoever, as Ted kept telling him. So he didn't have a hope in hell of becoming a success. He just struggled through the holiday comes with all the other losers, because let's be honest, all those entertainment uh, staff at uh, the Maplin's holiday camp were all losers in their own chosen professions and it was the only place they could get work was in the holiday camps for the summer season you know the, the dancers they hadn't won a prize since 1943 you know all that now on the podcast we're quite fond of speculating on what became of characters after series ended and so on so i've got to ask yourself what do you think ultimately became of spike because at the, course, at the end of the series he decides he's not going to go into the tax office he is actually going to pursue his dream Yes, I think probably that that was the way he went. He would go and try and pursue his dream, but he would probably find quite quickly up there was no way that anybody was ever going to employ him as a comedian. I'm quite convinced he would have ended up back in the tax office. There's no question about it. He would probably have married April and they'd have had babies and they'd have got himself a mortgage and they would have bought a little house somewhere. But he would have had to go back into the tax office to do a secure job to earn a living. I don't think he had a hope in hell of becoming a comedian, to be honest. Now, a few weeks ago, we were talking about big screen adaptations of sitcoms and I noticed that there are some episodes, particularly Christmas episodes of Heidi High which are longer than normal. Was there ever any possibility perhaps of like a full on 90 minute cinema type version of Heidi High? Do you think that's something that was ever prospect? It was discussed yes. Jimmy and David were actually approached to write a 90 minute screenplay for a potential movie but they turned it down they said no because I think we were well into the middle of the life of Heidi High at the time and they said if we write a a 90 minute movie we're using up material for half a series they were limited in as much as the the material was available to do uh, shows I mean when we did the final series they'd actually written out all the best comedy wheezes and routines that they could have possibly dreamed up for the show and they were scraping the barrel a bit for routines by then and they said that we wouldn't do the movie because we would have used up far too much material that we could put to better use in in the television series so that was the way that went and do you have a preference for film versus studio recording i think the studio recordings was our um, joy really because you know again with the studio audience there you've got a live audience watching but you, you've got to do it for the cameras it's a tricky technique working for comedy in the tv studio with an audience there because you've got to work with the audience but you've also got to be aware of the cameras so you're doing it on camera but you've got to wait for the audience laughter to subside before you can carry on it's like doing a live show but you've got to be aware of the visuals more it's quite a tricky one i think you know we did prefer the studios the filming was lovely you know to go out on location and do about three weeks holiday camps and stay in the hotel which we did we had fun socially it was nice but as far as the making the show is concerned i think the studio was where it came into its own i was going to ask you in terms of the core group and not just in heidi high but in other shows as well the core group of actors is it a fairly close unit are there some people like you described after low early on there's some people who are a bit more perhaps keep themselves themselves 
No, I think with our show, Heidi High, it was very much a family affair. You know, we all got on extremely well because that was the thing that with David and Jimmy's great knack of not just creating characters that work well, you know, under the common umbrella of the entertainment staff at Maple, it's like the common umbrella of the Home Guard in Dad's Army, all these businessmen who in different walks of life would probably never have met had it not been for the fact that they had to join the Home Guard and work together. They create this group of characters, but they also create a group, a family of actors uh, who have to portray these characters. They had this wonderful knack of casting so well when they did it the same with Heidi High, they put us together. I think a lot of the actors that Jimmy knew from way back. I mean, I joined the Croft and Perry camp by then. I'd been with them like when we did the pilot of Heidi High. I'd been sort of around Croft and Perry for about four or five years. I mean, Ruth Maddock was an old friend of Jimmy Perry's from his rep days way back. And they found Paul Shane, which was the coup de grace of the whole effort, really. They found Paul Shane to put in Ted Bovis because they were struggling to find a Ted Bovis. But when they got Paul, he and I just, you know, the chemistry was there instantly with the two of us from day one. I mean, when the, the first time I ever met Paul Shane, uh, I walked into the room and I shook his hand and said, hi, Paul, lovely to meet you. Because they called him into London to read for the show with me because I'd already been cast as Spike. And he looked at me and he, he sort of puzzled sort of way and he said, have we, have we met before? And I said, no, we haven't. I, I mean, I, I'd have remembered, but we hadn't met before. But you see, that was the thing. It, I, I saw him and something clicked. And he had the same feeling about with me, you know, the, the chemistry between us was there right from the very, very start. And that's the wonderful thing that Jimmy and David had the knack of putting people together that worked so well together. And we had a, a wonderful time working on Heidi High. It was like a big family, it really was. Now, before I ask you about some other sitcoms, I wanted to ask you about some of the sketch shows that uh, you were appearing in around about this time as well. The first of those would have been Russ Abbott's Madhouse. And that looks like just a really fun show to be involved in. It was enormous fun. It really was enormous fun. I loved doing that show. It was fantastic, you know, because it was little sketches. We used to get to dress up and all these different characters that I was able to play. And uh, and it was a joy for me to be a straight man for us, but with the little team that we were, it was fantastic fun. And uh, we get to sing and dance and do these numbers with Vince Prince and the Tone Defs. You know, we we had enormous fun dressing up as the Teddy Boys and all that. Uh, yeah, it was lovely. It was it was a joy to do. I mean, funny thing is, I almost didn't get that job because of Heidi High and Heidi High had just started going out in 81 when we did the first series of The Madhouse and uh, it was because of the persistence of the casting director who persuaded John K. Cooper to, to book me because of all the character work I'd done in rep in, in my rep days. I brought in a, a whole load of photographs to show them, to show him particularly, of me in all kinds of different disguises and, and characters that I'd done in plays in rep. And that was really what clinched it for me was the fact that I could look different and I could sound different and be different in various aspects of sketch comedy. And that got me the job. And how big an impact do you think that the passing of the repertory theatre. I mean, obviously, you still get local plays here and there, but how much do you think of that's actually had an impact in terms of actors then gaining experience and also getting experience of different roles, different parts? It makes a big difference. It made a big difference to me because I was able to do all the different stuff and, you know, learn my trade, literally, in rep. But uh, kids coming out of drama school today is a very different kettle of fish. It's a very different world of entertainment now that uh, is among us. You know, and kids coming out of drama school, they're lucky to get a, into an episode of EastEnders or something like that, you know, they don't get the opportunities that, that I was lucky enough to get in my youth because the rep system was still around. It's just a shame that it isn't anymore because, you know, there isn't the audience out there to 
supported like they used to be. Theatres do struggle now to make a living. They take touring shows, obviously, in summer seasons are few and far between now these days. Pantomime, of course, is as strong as it ever was, thank goodness. But the system is different now because the world is a different place. It's such a shame and nothing stays the same. There we are. And you also worked with Kenny Everett at the BBC as well. He would have been somebody quite quirky to work with, I imagine, not necessarily strictly disciplined in terms of style of working. No, I mean, what you saw was what you got with Kenny Everett. He was quite outrageous and extremely flamboyant. Having said that, very professional too. I mean, he got the job done at the end of the day and the sketches that, you know, he learned his lines, he turned up on time and, you know, he was there, he did the job and he was very funny. I had some great laughs working with him on that show. And in the late 1980s, you were also part of a group on a radio show written by Terry Ravenscroft called Star Turk 2. Oh, yes, you've done that up, blimey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Star Turk. They used to put it in print and the typists sometimes used to correct it because they thought it was a mistake. You know, Star Turk 2 was the actual title of it. It was a, it was a spoof take on Star Trek, obviously. And uh, we had a, a load of fun doing that. You know, Again, it was all vocal gymnastics for me. But my, one of my main characters was Captain Kirk. Sure, it was great fun. Huge laughs. And how much of that was strictly stuck to the script, or was there sort of scope in there for ad libbing and so on? Oh no, no, it was it was rigidly scripted. It had to be to the audience, uh, the studio audience, again at the radio theatre. But no, it was strictly scripted. It was very funny. It worked out well. I've still got copies of those on cassettes somewhere in a shelf in my office. But uh, yeah, it's lovely. It was great fun. And in terms of having the range of voices and characters and so on, I presume that that would be something that would come in very useful for a show like Weekending, for example, where you've got a fast turnaround and you've got your topical sketches and having to do a lot of different characters in a short space of time. That's right. As a, the politicians of the of the early 90s, you know, and uh, working with people like Sally Grace and Toby Longworth. And I actually took over from Alistair McGowan. I did a couple of guest spots when, when he was on the team. And when he left, they asked me to step in and, and be a regular member of the team. So I was, I was on weekending for about three or four years. We used to turn up on the day and there'd be literally sketches that were written the night before because it was so topical. Just run through it and then record it during the morning and edit it in the afternoon it went out in the evening on the Friday and we did it and one of our team in the sitcom club is a devotee of Spitting Image and according to IMDB it actually has you credited as the voice of Lester Pickett on Spitting Image is right that's true I think they were stuck one week and they said who could be oh get Jeff Holland he, he does voices um, so they booked me for this session I did a tip, something typical of Lester Piggott with his, his tax problems I think was around at the time and I did this Lester Piggott impression and then also I had to do a John Gielgud as well which uh, they threw at me but I did my Johnny Gielgud impression as well for that, that particular program but that was the only time I ever got involved with Spitting Image just for one session for John Lloyd 19... 19- 88, you then take on the role in You Rang My Lord. Is this something, I mean, do you, do you welcome the change? Having played Spike for so many years, and of course, you often hear of actors being worried about typecasting, did you welcome the change to do something a bit more straight, a bit more serious character? Well, it was a bit daunting when we did the pilot because we'd literally come back after a year having done Heidi Heidi for the final time the year before. And when we were rehearsing for the pilot, it was very, very difficult to call Paul Shane Alf. And I called him Ted a couple of times in rehearsal by mistake. And he was calling me Jim or James. 
And it was very, very odd for the two of us, having spent seven years as Ted and Spike, to suddenly be Alf and James. But we got used to it, and once we got established and, and into the, the first series, for me, it was a joy to play James Twelve Trees. He was a wonderful, complex character. And really, within the comedy framework of the show, it was a completely straight role for me, you know, and it was, I was able to exercise a few acting muscles that I hadn't stretched for a while, because, you know, the nature of the character was po-faced, terribly serious, biggest snob in the house, knew his place, and spent most of his time trying to put everyone into theirs. It was a wonderful part, but you got this weakness of James's besottedness with Miss Poppy as well, that you know, the little love triangle thing that went on there, and she leading on terribly, but uh, that was wonderful to to be able to do all that. In effect, it was a real straight role for me, and I thoroughly enjoyed playing that. You do often hear stories about members of the public sort of taking on an actor's portrayal as almost like real life. When people recognise you in the street after you rang my lord, do you ever get anybody actually sort of coming up to you and saying, oh, you're not as pleasant as Spike, you know, you're not as nice a chap and so on? No, I don't think that ever happened because when I got spotted in the street, it was always, regardless of what I did after it, I was always that bloke from Heidi High that was always recognized as Spike. In fact, even today when people recognize me now, and oh, good Lord, I don't look like him anymore, but you know, people do sometimes shout Heidi High across the street to me. Even now, even today, you know, in 2014, it still happens, and it's lovely when it does. But you know, I've always been recognised from high be high. Uh, when I do get recognised, it's always that you, you rang the Lord and Dr. Beachy, you know, are out of the window as far as uh, that's concerned. And it's lovely because it's just so nice to know that people, well, like yourself, remember these programmes uh, from this classic era that we were lucky enough to be a part of, and remember them all with such affection and fondness. And uh, it's lovely; it puts a smile on my face. It really does. We're talking about the Christmas shows, the extended shows and so on. When you find out that your show is going to be on Christmas night, for example, is that something that you're actually conscious of whilst you're recording? Is that going through your mind? You're actually thinking this is going to be the centerpiece on Christmas evening for the nation? No, it didn't come down to that. It was just to do this extended program and let's enjoy it for what it's worth. The fact that it was going out of Christmas really wasn't an issue for us when we were making it. You know, what was an issue for us was it was usually a 40 or 45 minute extra long special edition. David Croft used to say, I will not write a Christmas episode, you know, which includes Christmas in it. He said, because they can't repeat them. And that was always what was in David's mind, you know, when it could be repeated at any time of the year. The fact that it was a Christmas special to David Croft meant it was just a bit longer. So he made it a 45 or a 40-minute episode as opposed to a 30-minute or 28 minutes as they used to run with the titles. So, no, it didn't affect us when we did it. It was just the fact we got stuck into making a slightly longer episode. Now, I wanted to ask you about a pilot that you made, I believe in 1986, called The Ballad of Johnny Vanguard. Oh, yes, and if you can find a video of that somewhere, I'll be very grateful because I've lost mine. <laughs> that was actually going to be my next question. Uh, <laughs> so, no, if we if we ever if we, if we do, then certainly we'll let you know. But I was interested just to know a little bit about the process behind that, how that came about in terms of how that sort of arrives on your desk and then the... Yes, well, I can tell you exactly. It, uh, the casting director on that was a lady called Sheila McIntosh, who was married to an actor that I'd worked with many years before. So she was kind of family, if you like. And when this pilot for Johnny Vanguard came up to be made, as a tryout. I was one of several actors they called in to read for the part of Johnny himself because I literally I was 39, 40 years old at the time and on TV, I was only in Heidi High, Heidi High was at its peak, I was known for that. 
it seemed like a good idea at the time to get somebody like me to play uh, the part of Johnny Vanguard. I, I did. I got the job. We made the pilot. Sadly, it wasn't well enough written, I don't think, to be uh, considered to be viable for a series, and it, it never went to series. But we enjoyed very much working on the pilot. In fact, Pamela Condell played my mum in it, the inevitable gorgeous Pamela Condell, Mrs. Fox from Dad's Army. She played my mother in it, and uh, we recorded a scene in the, in the what was then the Gaumont Cinema in Southampton, which is now the Mayflower Theatre. And of course, I've been back twice and three times, four times to do pantomime there in that very theatre. But we recorded a scene in the auditorium of the cinema with um, Pamela and myself in that. And I got to sing and play the guitar. And good fun. I also wanted to ask you about the Allure Low Tour from 2009. How difficult or otherwise is it when you're approaching a role which is already associated with another actor? And do you try and distance yourself from their performance? Do you try and make the character entirely your own? How do you approach that? Well, it was tricky. Um, and when I was asked to play a Red A, I thought, well, that's marvellous. And I, I leapt at the chance. But, you know, I was lucky enough to be in most, if not all, of David Croft's TV shows. But, of course, the one I couldn't be in was a lower low, because when it started in 1982, I think, 83, Heidi High was well established and ongoing. I couldn't do that. So and when I offered the chance to play Rene in the stage tour a few years ago, I leapt at it because for me, it was like completing the set. You know, I'd done the whole lot. Now I got the box set playing Rene in Hello, Hello. And uh, it was lovely to be working with Vicky in that as well, which she gave it credence. And uh, I was playing Gordon Kay's role and uh, it was tricky. And I thought they're either going to love me or hate me. It's going to be, you know, it'll work or it won't. And I just took it by the scruff of the neck and made it my own. Played it with, obviously with the French accent that it needs. And people were very kind. And I actually was told by several people when they came to see it, it was a woo, hang on a minute, woo, you know, when I first appeared and opened the show. And they said, after about two, maybe three minutes, you forgot that I wasn't Gordon Kane. And they, they were watching René, René Artois, which was a great compliment to me, I must say. But it was a bit daunting to start with. And it seems that over the last few years, a lot of the sitcoms from the 1980s have come back in new versions. Well, new versions. We've got Birds of a Feather that's back, isn't it? And a stage tour going out at the moment around the country of Duty Free. There was a protracted idea after You Rang Me Lord finished that Sue Pollard and I would do a spin-off called James and Ivy, and an outline was written for it. But the BBC didn't want it because at the time they were running sitcoms down. Dr. Beachy was lucky to get two series, to be honest, because things were changing very much at the BBC in the early 90s. And the, but the James and Ivy was never commissioned, but it would have been nice to be able to do that. But as far as putting stuff on stage is concerned, no, I don't know that we could bring any of our stuff back. I noticed that some of the shows, like, for example, say, Dinner Ladies, have generally new casts. So do you think that, given that Heidi High is already a series that's set in the past, do you think something like the Heidi High musical with a new cast, perhaps, would be something that we could work on the stage today? Well, it has been done. In fact, a couple of years ago, they did, they put a tour out of, of the Heidi High stage show. Barry uh, Howard was in it, playing his own original part of Barry, the ballroom dancer. And Nikki Kelly stood in. She was obviously Sylvia, the Yellowco girl. But she stood in and played Yvonne with Barry, she was the ballroom dancer. So they were both in it to give it a bit of credence. It didn't do terribly well, sadly, on its uh, theatre tour. 
I think because I sort of fell in between two stools. Of, it was a generation thing. It was a timing issue, I think. People remembered Heidi Hein, and there were people that don't know what it is. You know, it was a kind of, it fell between those kind of stools. But, but again, as a show, it works as a show. And uh, people playing, the boy playing my part, I knew him very well because I worked with him before. But it's difficult to take a, a show as iconic as Heidi High was and put it on stage with different actors playing the roles. Having said that, of course, I've just done that very same thing with a low, a low, but uh, it didn't quite work. It should have done, but I think it was a timing issue. I also wanted to ask you briefly about one show that you did on Radio 2 a few years ago, which was the restaging of The Goon Show. How do you approach something like that? Because it's, it, everybody associates you know, those roles with the people themselves. Well, it was a great joy for me to do because I, I never thought I'd get the opportunity because I've been a Goon Show fan all my life. You know, and I've always done the voices too for fun. And uh, for me, I was asked to do all the Peter Sellers characters, which I could do fairly accurately, I must be, be honest. And we had Harry Seacombe's son Andy playing his part. We just leapt at it. We took it by the throat and made it uh, work. It was enormous fun. It was one of the, one of the happiest nights I've ever spent in a theatre because we recorded it on stage at the Playhouse Theatre in London. We had a full orchestra on stage. You know, we had all the music and the songs and everything that a goon show would have had. We, we did it. We turned it into an hour-long spectacular. It was meant to be just a 30-minute show, but with the warm-up that we did, it all went in, it was all recorded, and it turned into a, a complete hour, and it's a joy to listen to even today. It was one of the happiest times I've ever spent. To be able to do Peter Sellers' characters on radio, for me, was just a gift that I'll never get the like of again. Fantastic. And I must just ask out of curiosity, you mentioned Harry Seacombe there. I've heard occasionally the suggestion that Harry Seacombe was actually the a possible choice for Ted Bovis, but I've never actually seen that confirmed anywhere. Is that something that you'd ever heard yourself? Or? You know, I've never heard that. That's the first time I've ever heard that. You could see why it might have been suggested. We had several actors actually turn up. Um, no names, uh, no pack drill, but I won't uh, name them. Several. I did read with several other actors for the role of Ted, but uh, they just were up to par, I'm afraid. It just didn't work. But Paul Shame is the obvious choice, and, you know, and the rest is history, as I say. But I hadn't heard that one about Harry Seacombe before. That's a thought, isn't it? It could have been a very different show if he'd been on board. <laughs> and I wanted to finally ask you about, you mentioned before about pantomime and you're appearing in Jack and the Beanstalk in Plymouth this year. And as I understand it, according to the, the poster, it says this is your 43rd pantomime season. My 43rd, yes. <laughs> now, how have you seen pantomime change over the years? Because, I mean, I'm you know only mid-30s myself, but I was lucky enough to see, you know, some of the established pantomime actors on the stage up here in Glasgow, whereas it seems over the last few years, you now have a bit more of soap stars in there, and now you have your sort of, like, X-Factor people and so on coming into it, and there was a whole sort of period when you had Australian soap stars as well. Yes, yes, they're still coming over to do it, but the ones that can do it, it's fine, it just annoys me when you get people in, in pantomime that can't do it, you know, and you also you have this inverted snobbery with pantomime as well, and somebody goes, oh, panto, you do panto, Ooh. oh dear, oh dear, you come down to that, have you? I just poo-poo all that because pantomime is an art form. It's a craft and you need to be able to do it. And what, what annoys me is when you, we see people from the X Factor and Britain's Got Talent get put in pantomimes, you know, they can't deliver. They have no 
idea what to do. They've got no training at all, no experience, and they just don't deliver the goods. And this is what really annoys me about pantomime when you get those kind of people cast. You know, there are a lot of us around who've been doing pantomime for a lot of years, and it's a joy for me to be going back to work with Bobby Devereux again this year, you know, because we, did, we worked together last year, and we did, we did one two years before that as well together. And we hit it off because we both have the same attitude towards comedy and energy. We've both got energy on stage, which is important, it's crucial. And pantomime, it is evolving, sadly it shouldn't, because the stories now are the main four, just you, Jack of the Beanstalk, Dick Whittington, Cinderella, and what I did. You've got the main four, you, you don't get the ones done these days, like we used to do, I, Sleeping Beauty was the first time I played Dame, actually, it was a, a subject you don't see much of now. And there was, you know, things like Puss in Boots, and Goody Two Shoes, and the house that Jack built, you know, these were pantomimes that I used to go and see when I was a boy. But they don't, they don't do them anymore. You know, they just stick to the main four because that's what families bring their kids out to see, the main four stories. So, you know, Pantomime has evolved over the years. In the 1960s, you had pop stars like Cliff Richard and Frank Highfield doing pantomimes, you know, with the best will in the world. Not all of them are capable of it. But thank goodness for the likes of us that can do it, that are still doing it and stretching our old legs you know, every year. Now, 43, this, this one for me, this is coming up. I don't know how much longer I'll keep going, but I'll do it for as long as I can stand. Do you ever have people uh, approach you afterwards and say, I've seen you in pantomime myself as a young lad and now I'm here with, with my kids now. No, that does happen sometimes, yes. In fact, I've worked with young girls who've been part of the, the Babes Chorus, you know, the, the juvenile chorus of little ones. They've come back as, as we grown women with their own children and say, I worked with you in, back in 1980, frozen to death, you know, and I'm just bringing my kids down to see the show. And yes, you do get people coming back with their children because it is the first time a child will ever get to the theatre, usually, to see a pantomime. And it makes a big impression on them. And uh, yes, it does happen. People do come back like that, yeah. It's lovely when and just finally, I mean, you, you mentioned before about how you tend to be most recognised, most associated with the role of Spike. But do you yourself have a particular part, be it on television or the stage, one particular role that you just absolutely adored playing? Yeah, well, it has to be James Twelvetrees for me, and you rang me Lord, you know, to be as part of that program was a massive joy for me, and it was a lovely program. The standards, the production standards, were so high. It was like working in a real house, to be honest, because that three-dimensional set. You know, we had uh, two weeks to get a show together. We used to pre-record the scenes in the back rooms, in the rooms that were in out of the audience's view, and then put it all together the second week in front of an audience and um, get all the laughter recorded. But you know, playing James Twelvetrees for me was probably the peak of my television career, certainly. But, uh, a private moment was the Goon Again, when I did Goon Again. That was just a one-off special thing that I'll never forget. But, you know, as far as my overall career is concerned, I think playing James Twelvetrees was is my ultimate favourite. The cherry on my cake, you know. Grand. Well, thank you very much indeed, Jeffrey Holland, for joining us today on the Sitcom Club, and all the best with... And this is my friend, Mr. Laurel. Thank you very Edinburgh. much, Gary. Appreciate that. And this is my friend, Mr. Laurel, plays at the Edinburgh Festival between July the 30th and the 25th of August. And there are also performances coming up in Portsmouth, Blackton and Broadstairs. Details of that are available on the link, which is at the Sitcom Club Twitter feed, at the Sitcom Club. As I mentioned at the top of the show, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome. We're normally to be found, as I mentioned, on Twitter, at the Sitcom Club, or on Facebook by searching for The Sitcom Club, or you can find us at our website, sitcomclub.com. We have been running our podcast for just over a year now, and we started back in April 2013, and we have around about 40 or so shows in the archive, all of which are available to download 
either on iTunes or if you prefer your own preferred podcatcher. All the details are on sitcomclub.com. Do bear in mind that the show's do occasionally have a little bit of fruity language, which is entirely my fault, as sometimes the debate gets a little bit heated. Thank you for listening today. We hope to have more of these interviews later in the year. Meanwhile, our series of spin-off podcasts continues throughout the summer, and the sitcom club itself will be back in August, and we have all manner of shows lined up to discuss, including many listener requests. If you have a particular show that you'd like us to talk about or anything else that you want to get in touch with us for... Just tweet us at the Sitcom Club or email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com.